0: Good afternoon. I'm Christy Potter, the coordinator of the January Series, and it's my privilege to welcome you this afternoon to the final day of the January Series 2008. It takes a lot of assistance to uh, put together these 15 days of the lecture series, and it, it just seems like just a few days ago I was welcoming everybody on the first day, and, and time has just flown by so quickly, and uh, we were able to hear so many wonderful presentations. But I do want to take just a couple minutes to thank just a few people that have been a tremendous help. First of all, I just want to mention that Gary Leps and Jim Korff were um, responsible for the concept and design of the backdrop that we had this year uh, for the January series 2008, and I appreciate their uh, work tremendously. Ellen Aldrink and Vicki Seberg helped out with the PowerPoint slide to make the overall stage presentation, and they took my ideas and, and brought it to reality, so I appreciate that. And then in the in the auditorium every day uh, you've noticed that there's been ushers and camera crew students and house managers technical crew in particular Carl Hordike Doug Heisinger, Darcy Verwise Steve Nagelsky and Jeff Greenfield are um, the technical staff that just really pulled things together um, not just in the auditorium but made it possible for us to bring our remote sites uh, to our different 12 different sites around the the country and I appreciate all their work and then I have four students that did an incredible job of working for us this year in the January series: Ashley Harima, Carrie Borson, Colin McWhorter, and David Dornbus, who did a lot of jobs for me, uh, most particularly those late night airport runs that he made for me, especially when Ishmael Bayden arrived till three in the morning. He was a great help to me. And then, of course, to my assistant Deanna Dahl, who is my partner throughout the whole year, helping to put together the series, and I couldn't do it without her great support. And um, Things are already in works for the 2009 series, so we hope that on January 7, 2009, you all come back and join us again. Until that time, we just pray that you'll have a blessed year between now and then. And now if you'll join me with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us. We thank you for Kelvin College and its students, faculty, staff, and administrators. Thank you for the January series and the opportunity we've had to gather together to listen, to learn, to be challenged, and to be inspired. We pray that we will not quickly forget the things that we've learned as we go about being the agents of renewal in this world that you've given us to live in. Bless our speaker today as he shares his knowledge and expertise on an area of great importance. With no easy solutions, we pray that we will learn from him. Teach us to be wise and responsible stewards of your creation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now, Claudia Beverslose, the provost at Calvin College, will introduce our guest. Before I introduce
1: the final speaker, I just want to call Christy back here a moment, and and mention that it's been a terrific year. Many of you do know this is her first year coordinating the series, and all the people that she mentioned, all the offices that she mentioned, give you some idea of how much work this coordination was. And so, I'd like us to express our appreciation to Christy for doing such a marvelous job for this. <laughs> We do give them one day off before we tell them to start working on next year. I was thinking about how good it was to close the January series of 2008 with a non-controversial topic, you know, nuclear power. Recently Edge Magazine asked its group of leading-edge scientists and writers this question, what have you changed your mind about? One of the responders said this, in the last few years i've changed my mind about nuclear power i used to believe that expanding nuclear power was too risky now i believe that the risks of climate change are far greater than the risks of nuclear power as a result we need to move urgently toward a new generation of nuclear reactors when i read that quote at the beginning of the year i immediately thought of sigval berg this is precisely his work helping to develop and oversee this new generation of nuclear reactors Sigval berg has the credentials and credibility to help us think about energy and the role of nuclear power this afternoon he currently works for the world's the nation's largest wholesale power seller his work as a vice president at constellation energy is to oversee processes that helped develop this fleet i didn't realize they were called a fleet of nuclear power reactors and that includes extensive safety processes that have been developed he came to that position from the institute for nuclear power operations and the world association of nuclear operators and in that role he led the first international review of the chernobyl incident I've had the pleasure of meeting Sigval on previous occasions here at Calvin and I've been able to hear stories from him about constructing reactors in various places in the world including one that I remember at the India-Pakistan border Sigval's introduction to nuclear power was through the Navy he's a US Naval Academy graduate and one time was the chief engineer of a nuclear-powered submarine but he has many other sides and interests as well Reverend Berg has an MDiv from Trinity Lutheran Seminary in Ohio, and he's been a senior pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. He's very interested in leadership development throughout industry and throughout churches, and he currently teaches a Sunday school class at the Naval Academy. How did Sigberg first get to ne- connected to Calvin College? As a parent. His older daughter Kristen graduated from Valparaiso but then his next two daughters graduated from Calvin, Suzanne in 1995 and Sarah in 2006. Since that time, and I think out of a deep appreciation for the education his daughters received here, he's used his industry connections to open many doors for our engineering students. When Sigval Berg asked us, how can I best help this college that I've come to appreciate, one of the things that we said in reply was this come and teach us something about nuclear power about energy and about how thoughtful involved christians might think about the role of nuclear power in addressing this evolving energy and climate crisis in our world and so on this last day of the january series we are so grateful that he said yes to that invitation Calvin College is grateful to GMB architects and engineers for underwriting today's presentation. Please welcome Sigval Berg.
2: having been born and raised here in michigan it's always good to come home and particularly today coming home uh... and to be with you here at calvin college Uh, our discussion today uh... and hopefully some questions afterward will be useful to you and when i talk about energy i'm going to talk about a segment of the energy industry that is the issue of electricity something that we would like to be able to turn on the switch and have electricity every day, and, oh, by the way, keep the costs down. But having said that, I've divided my conversation really into three parts, and I'll share that with you in a moment. As we take a look at where I would like to head, I've divided the conversation into context. I'd like to at least in a very brief way talk about a context for nuclear energy and nuclear power, then spend a few moments talking about nuclear power, both its history, uh, the good and the bad, and where we are headed in the future and why, and then I'd like to talk about the final piece, the issue of responsibility that we have uh, as Christians and as citizens here in the United States as it relates to the subject of energy, and in particular, electrical energy. But where I would like to begin is just a small vignette of a story that happened uh, about four years ago. I was in New Delhi. I was having lunch with the Chief Operating Officer of NPCIL who's responsible for all operations of commercial operation, we'll move this back a bit, uh, who is responsible for all of operations of the commercial nuclear power plants in India. And at lunch, he told me this. He said, Sig, do you know that we in India use one-fifteenth of the energy that's used in Europe? We use one-thirtieth of the energy that's used in the United States. All you have to do is look around in India, and for those of you who have been to India know it's a country of contrasts. And between India and China, they make up nearly one-third of the world's population. But having said that, he said, if we are to improve the quality of life in India, we will need more electricity. Maybe just enough electricity so that each home can have one light bulb and there is enough light for our children to study at night, to get an education, and be able to use that for themselves, their family, and our country. But he said if we use coal as a way of lighting India, What it will do to the environment is not acceptable. How do we become also energy independent? Is there enough gas? Is there enough other sources of energy? And he said, we've made the strategic decision that commercial nuclear power needs to be a part of the way we do business here, and we need to do it safely. It's with that context of the importance of electricity the understanding of resources, what it means for us moving forward. And so the issue first of context. When one takes a look at this map of the United States, what I want to do is talk on the demand side of issues relating to nuclear power, and there are two points that I'd like to make about the slide. When you take a look at the side, you see the red and orange area areas on the right side or the eastern side of the U.S., down in Florida, and certainly when you look over in California. Two things about the slide. Number one, take a look at the dates when minimum, reserves margin, r- minimum reserve margins will be pressed or met in the use and generation of electricity. You see on the East Coast, 2008, 2009, down in Florida, 2011, and on the West Coast, uh, we talk about 2013, though you move down to California, and the issue there is probably around 2009. And what I mean by that is the minimum reserve margins we feel are necessary to meet peaks, we will be right, we will have used the energy we need, and we will have to run on reserve and so there is a growing need around the United States for more electricity item number two there are interconnects in the United States there are three major regions there's the eastern interconnect which is sort of in that blue area and everything to the east and there power can be moved within the interconnect there's the Western interconnect from the Intermountain states all the way off to the Pacific Ocean and that is called the Western Interconnect. And then down in Texas is the third interconnect where electricity is generated. I share that with you because one of the issues we face that I'm not going to talk about today is the electrical grid to move energy around. Even if we can keep demand down, raise the supply, we have to be able to move it and the transmission system in the United States in many areas is either overburdened or not well necessarily maintained. And It's a strategic policy issue that this country is going to have to start facing now if we're even able to move electricity uh, around the country. So that's the first issue of background that I'd like to share with you. This next slide I think tells you another important piece. Worldwide between now and 2030 we will expect to double the energy need worldwide. Here in the United States we expect to increase our need for electricity by 45 percent between now and 2030. Now there are ways to deal with that. You can bring on new generation, you can work on the demand side by being more conserving of our electricity. Both need to be uh, employed as we move forward but just assume that we need to increase our supply of energy by 45 percent. If we keep the current distribution of plants already producing electricity, this would mean that before uh, before 2030, we'll need to add 50 nuclear power plants, some 260 coal-fired plants, some 280 natural gas plants, and 93 plants that use renewables. That's just between now and 2030. Think what that means as an infrastructure problem for us as we move forward. This last slide, I think, will be helpful. As many around the world have begin, begun to realize, nuclear power needs to be a part of an overall uh, electric generation policy and program. And there are two kinds of power base load and peak load. Base load is what you use every day, and then peak load, like during the summers when all the air conditioners are on, you need initial, uh, additional generation capacity, and it's usually your most expensive. Most are beginning to recognize nuclear clearly needs to be a part of base load generation. From the slide, I think you can be able to see that around the world, those currently with nuclear power plants. China and India and others considering nuclear power plants that a broad part of the world is considering the use of additional nuclear power in order to meet their particular energy needs okay we've talked a little bit about context and where I would like to move next is to talk about nuclear energy itself I'm going to do it in a number of ways of telling a story and I hope you'll find it to be useful This first slide is I would like to talk about the birth of nuclear energy. We'll start from the left and sort of move around clockwise into some key areas that I hope you'll find uh, informational as we talk about uh, the growth of nuclear power in the world. In 1938, two German scientists Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann demonstrate nuclear fission. Four years later, December 1942, Fermi, here in the United States, demonstrates the first self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction of all places in a lab under the squash courts at the University of Chicago. Then in July of 1945, the United States explodes its first atomic device. August of 1945, U.S. drops bombs, atomic bombs, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Next to the picture of the bomb, to the right, is a picture of SSN 571, the USS Nautilus. In June of 1952, the United States begins construction of its first nuclear submarine, It is launched in 1954. Construction took only 18 months, something I will tell you we are unable to do today. Nautilus's first commanding officer was an individual by the name of Commander Dennis Wilkinson, who we'll talk about briefly here. He'll return in the story a little bit later. And in January of 1955, Just as Nautilus got underway for its first extended voyage, Dennis Wilkinson sends this now famous message underway on nuclear power. Then we move to the bottom right of the slide, and there, in December of 1953, President Dwight D. Eisenhower gives a speech before the General Assembly at the United Nations entitled, Atoms for Peace an historic talk, and I would like to read to you two portions of his speech. They'll be very brief. He begins to say that the United States knows that if the fearful trend of atomic military buildup can be reversed, the greatest of destructive forces can be developed into a great boon for the benefit of all mankind. A little bit later he goes on to say, A special purpose would be to provide abundant electrical energy in the power-starved areas of the world. Thus, the contributing powers would be dedicating some of their strength to serve the needs rather than the fears of mankind. In December of 1957, the first U.S. large-scale nuclear power plant begins operation in Shippingport, Pennsylvania. Two years later, in October of 1959, Dresden One nuclear power station in Illinois achieves a self-sustaining nuclear reaction. What's important about Dresden One in Illinois is that it's the first commercial nuclear power plant that has been built without government funding. Between 1965 and 1978, Some 237 nuclear power plants were ordered in the United States. Some would refer to this as a bandwagon market. It was already a heady time for a young and, I must admit, somewhat naive industry that was expanding very rapidly. But we were also an industry that was challenged. And all this changed on March 28, 1979 when an accident occurred at Unit 2, the newest of two reactors at Three Mile Island, TMI as it's known, in Pennsylvania. A series of equipment failures and human errors called coolant to be drained from the reactor, causing fuel in the reactor to melt and the reactor vessel itself to be ruined, resulting in the most serious nuclear accident in the history of the United States. And this accident had a tremendous impact on the nuclear industry. It caused sweeping changes in emergency planning. It caused sweeping changes in training, human factors, engineering, and design. As a result, the plants that were built, there was backfitting required, costs went up new plants being built, had to develop a whole series of changes, and those who had already been built, there was more backfit that was required. Costs were increasing, but as you might imagine, at the same time, there was a decrease in public and financial support, which resulted in the cancellation of 97 nuclear units with a loss of billions of dollars of capital. Shortly after the event, Bill Lee, who was the President and Chief Executive Officer of Duke Power, stepped forward and led a national movement to bring together nuclear operators in a cooperative organization that would share best practices and lessons learned, because you need to know that at TMI, the events that led to that accident, had happened at Davis-Bessey a couple years before in Ohio, where there was not an accident and the operators took care of the problem. There was a similar problem in Switzerland, but the information was not shared within the industry. Thus, learning from each other plays an important role in good reactor safety. And as a result of all of this, of raising standards in the way we did business, standards of excellence and sharing operating information, The Institute of Nuclear Power Operations, INPO, was formed and incorporated in October of 1979. The first president and CEO of INPO was a man by the name, Admiral Dennis Wilkinson, the first commanding officer of the Nautilus. What he was able to bring along was all of the knowledge that had been accumulated in the areas of reactor safety from the Naval Reactors Program led by Hyman Rickover. And that began a new phase in life for the nuclear power industry here in the United States. But as the U.S. industry worked to recover from TMI from the years after that, the industry was rocked again in April of 1986 in the Ukraine with the problems at Chernobyl. Unit unit 4 at Chernobyl had a major reactor accident. Again, the cause was in inadequate design, and operators who didn't fully understand the responsibilities for nuclear safety. As you may know, uh, it was truly a disaster for the industry worldwide and certainly the, PA, the people that lived near that plant uh, in the Ukraine. And since then, all four reactors of the unit are now shut down, and Unit 4, where the accident took place, is, in, is enclosed with a concrete shelter. As a result of this event, the World Association of Nuclear Operators was formed and it modeled itself in many ways after the Institute of Nuclear Power Operations in the United States and the desire of the World Association was to unite every commercial nuclear power plant in the world, bar none, to maximize safety and reliability of the plants and to share operating information so that excellence in operation and focus on nuclear safety and what people do day in and day out will be a part of the industry forever. And I will tell you that today there are over 440 units in operation around the world in over 31 countries, and Wano, as it's known, and INPO continue to work closely with the industry as a whole to bring excellence to operations. In this next picture, we begin to see that after that, the industry has been reborn. And I can say this, that when one takes a look at TMI today, Unit 1 at that site is now operating. It did not come back online for almost seven years, and it continues to operate safely and efficiently. And over the last two decades, the nuclear industry in the United States and around the world has worked extremely hard at improving safety and improving the operation of the fleet. And there has been a strong emphasis on improving professionalism. Because if we can have the best equipment in the world, it is not enough. This business is also about people. People who are highly trained, who are highly motivated, who are highly professional and have imbued within them the important responsibilities dealing with reactor safety every day, day in, and day out. And not only is this in the United States, but it's around the world. On the bottom right, you see a chart, it may be a little hard to see, where we talk about unit capability factor. That's the ability for a reactor to stay online and to produce electricity. And you will note that over the years, starting in uh, the late 1980s, all the way till 2006, where we have the latest information, you'll see the capacity factor of our plants has increased dramatically to where we now operate between 90 and 92 percent. It won't get much higher than that because the rest of the time for the year, we take the plants down for refueling and or for routine maintenance. It's a great record. At the same time, you see a red line, it drops down to nearly zero, where we talk about significant events. Now, these aren't events that are accidents, but within the industry, things that we have learned where we're having events that we don't like, what is that trend? And you will see that those numbers have dropped down near zero. So when you take a look at how the industry is performing, it's performing very well. But I want to underline the role of people and the role they play in running these plants very well. At the same time, the Institute of Nuclear Power Operations was asked to establish the National Academy for Nuclear Training, where all nuclear training in the United States is accredited and carefully monitored to make sure our operators are properly trained. Every site in the United States has a full-scope simulator where it looks exactly what it looks like in the control room at the plant, where they can go and operate the plant. Under simulated conditions to make sure their skills are exactly where they need to be when they come to work. Today, there are over 104. Just recently, Browns Ferry 1 has been uh, uh, refurbished and is now online, and so we have 104 nuclear plants in the United States. And now let's talk about the future. When we look moving forward of where we have been, we begin to see that nuclear power will play a future role as we move forward. In the upper left, you see President Bush that uh, visited Calvert-Cliff's nuclear power plant in southern Maryland, the first president since Jimmy Carter to visit a nuclear plant in the United States, as the administration has looked very carefully and highly supported the use and growing of nuclear power the other thing that i want to say is on the bottom right i don't believe that nuclear power is the solution to all our problems when it comes to energy we need a balanced portfolio and a reasoned energy policy in this country not only does it involve i think the expansion of nuclear power which i'll talk about uh, briefly in a moment or two uh, and the best use of our resources that we currently have in coal and natural gas it means finding new ways of using power uh, whether it's hydrogen new ways to use uh... solar uh... new ways to employ wind energy but all of those pieces need to be in the mix if we're going to meet the energy needs required by twenty thirty and certainly beyond and so it's an issue of not only dealing with sources but dealing with demand how do we appropriately deal with conservation how do we appropriately deal with how we use energy and how do we do it in a green way, a friendly way? Here in the United States, there's also a need to take a look, how, do we, how can we become energy secure? Uh, I have a friend uh, who is a member of the Japanese Atomic Energy Commission and he said, Sig, we don't have resources here. We're resource poor. And nuclear needs to be a part of the mix in Japan. Why? Because it's an energy source that they could have in their country and not be dependent necessarily outside for oil or coal that would come from other places. So what I would like to say is we take a look at the future. It's a bright future and there are some 25 plants that are now being looked at to be built here in the U.S. to help meet the need moving forward in 2030. Now this next slide is a little difficult perhaps to see but I want to talk about CO2 equivalent emissions during the life cycle of a plant. And what I would like you to see is when one takes a look at coal, natural gas, biomass, solar, hydro, now you may say, wait a minute, how does solar uh, cause CO2 emissions uh, into the atmosphere? I want you to see that what we are talking about is the full cycle from the construction, the movement of the materials to the site, uh, in building these plants, not just as they operate. And so even solar or geothermal will have to some degree some CO2 emissions in making the equipment. But when you see coal uh, with over a thousand tons CO2 equivalent per gigawatt hour, natural gas, biomass at 46, look where nuclear falls at the bottom of the list. It is um, a low CO2 emitter here in the United States and matches many of the uh, solar and wind power and biomass discussions we have with the renewables. When one looks at sources of emission-free electricity in the United States, nuclear provides 73% of it, wind about 1.4%, hydro about 24%, and solar and geothermal a little over 1.5%. If you look around the world and in those countries that have chosen to follow the Kyoto Accords, when they, at the, end of the, at the end of the year, sum up how they did in CO2 emissions, every single country was able to get close or meet their CO2 goals because they had nuclear operations, though many don't want to talk about it. And I think you've seen the numbers that I have shown just a moment ago. Now I'd like to do at least a base generation comparison for plants. And I know the slide is a little bit busy. I'm taking a a look at base load generation, not the peakers. They're the expensive players in the game. And when you need to turn a peaker on, prices can go up from 10 to 20 times what it normally is to put a peaker on. But when you need the energy, we pay the price. But when you take a look at production costs, that includes operations, maintenance, and fuel. Out of the baseload generation key components, nuclear runs about 1.7 cents per kilowatt, coal about 2.3, gas about 6.75, and oil almost 10 cents per kilowatt. Nuclear, when it comes to production costs, uh, is a pretty good uh, operator in that area. CO2 emissions we talked about, nuclear once again uh, falls right at the top of the tables where when it talks about CO2 emissions, that is being the lowest. The other issue that we need to be understand when one talks about estimated capital to build plants for all in cost, just not the plant itself, you can see nuclear then comes out at the bottom as being the most expensive. But remember, these plants are made to operate at least 60 years. Now, there are a couple other things that I want to talk about that you may not be aware of in this industry as we move forward. This is a chart that takes a look at the five-year attrition or workforce within within the nuclear sector. The red lines on the chart are our regular operators, blue are those who will generally attrit during the period of time, and the, uh, or the, uh, the green, the lime color, are those we believe to be potential requirements, uh, re, uh, potential retirements. Take a look at the age distribution. This is an old industry in the sense of people. It starts to peak at 43, uh, 48 to 52 is the largest, and over the next five years we expect 35% retirement of people in this industry. Coupled with those who normally move in and out of the industry, that says that over the next five years, we have a workforce problem, and that is short 25,000 people. In the construction side, getting ready to build nuclear power plants, there are not enough construction workers as we move forward to build power plants. The next five years will be okay, but as we move outside of that, there is a huge shortfall. And one of the areas that it's short is in welders. We do not have enough welders today qualified to work in our plans. It is estimated by a number of people that a welder working at one of the new builds that we look forward to having uh, here pretty shortly will make probably between 100 and $120 an hour because that's how important the skill is, and that's for a skilled welder. So the issue I want you to see with this slide is that the issues facing nuclear power and much of the industry in the United States is that there are not enough qualified workers, and it's a workforce management problem. Now, this slide is a little busier, but it raises a different set of questions that I hope you'll be able to see, and maybe my pointer will be helpful. Uh, This slide takes a look at cost comparisons starting in 2000 out to 2008. And we have a cost index with 2000 being at 100. And I want to show you a couple things. Look at the price of steel on this red line where the price are going steel is hard to get and who's buying all the steel by the way who do you think China and so the price of steel is continuing to go up what does that mean for major capital projects cost is going up this dotted line here is engineering and project management those costs uh, those costs are going up and the problem is we do not have enough project managers with experience building major capital projects in the United States. We may over the next five years, but as they retire, there are not many people behind to follow them. And then you take a look at the cost of construction labor. At the same time, it is also going up, and the cost of bulk materials. It's an issue we have to face as we deal with new construction. Thirty years ago, I could say we had over... I don't know what the exact number is, but at least 30 nuclear power plants being built in the United States at, all at the same time. And all equipment needed for those plants was resourced in the United States. Today's build, that will not be the case. We have lost the industrial capacity in the United States to make and, and uh, customize uh, ultra-heavy forgings. And right now, they come basically from one place in the world JSW, Japanese Steelworks, in Japan. And so our ability even to build major components, whether for nuclear power plants or refineries, has been lost. And so it's a major issue for us, an infrastructure problem, as we move forward. Well, I hope that I have been able to talk a little bit, A, about context, and then, two, a little bit about nuclear power, and some of the issues that we're going to face. And now I'd like to go to my next area, in the area what I call the area of responsibilities. And I'd like to talk about the four C's. And what I'm going to do is introduce the first three, and then I would like to talk a little bit about a perspective from a personal side and add the fourth C as we deal with the issue of responsibility. The first C that I want to talk about is the issue of Creativity creativity. But before I do that, let me read a couple quotes to you of wrong predictions. The U.S. Secretary of Navy in December 4th, 1941 said, no matter what happens, the U.S. Navy will not be caught napping. That's December 4, 1941. <laughs> Business week, August 2nd, 1968, with over 50, 50 Foreign cars already on sale here. The Japanese auto industry isn't likely to carve out a big slice of the U.S. market. Margaret Thatcher, 1974. It will be years, not in my time, before a woman will become prime minister. Ken Olson, president of digital equipment in 1977. There is no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. Now, this one by Albert Einstein in 1932. There is not the slightest indication that nuclear energy will ever be attainable. It would mean that the atom would have to be shattered at will. Be careful what you say. So the first issue I want to talk about very briefly is the issue of creativity. And I would define creativity as being able to make something new, thinking outside the box, pushing the boundaries, starting with a clean shade of paper, seeing the need and then seeking a solution. Creativity is the willingness to risk, a willingness to invest, a willingness to move out of our comfort zone, a willingness to go places no one has gone before. And as we take a look at our responsibilities, particularly as it relates to the energy center, how do we employ our current resources? Are there new resources that may be available to us? How do we really deal with the demand side of the equation in the way we can serve and better use the energy that we have? The issue of creativity, C number one. The second area that I would like to talk about is the issue of critical thinking. And I believe that critical thinking in this country is in short supply. Just listen to the political campaigns that we have today. I believe that crea- critical thinking is about suitcasing an issue. It is knowing the facts, understanding the context, viewing issues from a lot of different perspectives. It is multidiscipline not only dealing with your own discipline but other disciplines. As we build nuclear power plants, we have to look at the business case. How do you finance it? How do you manage the risk? Do we have the right technical designs? What does it mean politically? What does it mean economically? What does it mean to get the workforce together? What does it mean in the way we train people? That's pretty broad. And so the issue for us is that we need to have the willingness to ask why. Why? and why again when we deal with an issue. Critical thinking is essential today and is essential tomorrow. And I think one of the reasons it's in short supply is because it's hard work. When we take a look at the issues we face today and what's necessary to build a new nuclear power plant to deal with energy and the economic and social issues that go with it, we need strong critical thinking. and then the last of these first three C's that I want to talk about is that the first two alone are not enough the glue that holds it together is what I would call compassion compassion in the way we look at people and care about people and care about the world we live in remember I said in nuclear power it's not just about equipment but it's about our people that are highly trained highly motivated very professional and I care about the people in India who have not much of a life and who seek a better life. I also care for the people here in the United States who don't have very much, who struggle from day to day to make a living. Can there be a better life for them? And can there be a better life for the way people live around the world? I think Mother Teresa says this rather well when she says, we must know that we have been created for greater things, not just to be a number in the world, not to just go for diplomas or degrees for this work or for that. We were created to love and to be loved. We were created to serve and to be served. And so I think it's important for us in whatever endeavor we're in, not only are we creative, not only do we have critical thinking, but it will none of those will all work until we have a sense of compassion that what we're doing is not for ourselves or for our own gain, but for the greater cause of humanity in the world and for our neighbor next door. So, having said that, I would like to add my own personal perspective and my own personal view of things, and I would like to use these words from the Apostle Paul, who writes in the New Testament in Acts in 2024. I think Paul captures things rather succinctly when he says, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I can finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel, to the the good news of God's grace. Those are powerful words for Paul. I think they are powerful words for me, and I believe they are powerful words for all of us that my fourth and final C is that of calling. All of us have been called, and it's not for ourselves, but a calling to testify to the good news of God's grace. God's grace of the world that we live in that he has given us that is wonderful and beautiful and full of opportunity. Well, we've done enough to mess it up, but God has given us a wonderful gift, a gift of God's grace. How do we testify to that? The second area is in our gifts and abilities. God has given each of us special gifts and special abilities to work in various places for various causes and for various needs around the world. Those gifts and those abilities are certainly a gift, a grace of God. But the last of these gifts that I would like to talk about today of testifying to the grace of God is testifying to God's Son who came into the world, Jesus Christ. One, to be able to restore us, to renew us, to release us, to free us, so that all the gifts and all the abilities we have can be released with a sense of compassion for the mission that he has given to all of us to create the kind of world that people want to live, can grow and flourish and become the people who God created them to be testifying to the grace of God, I believe is at the beginning of all of our lives, and it's certainly been for mine and I hope for yours. And if we are to be able to deal responsibly with the issues facing us in energy and many other sectors, I believe that creativity, critical thinking, compassion, and our calling all go together. I'd like to conclude with a Benedictine model where the Benedictine monks have this as their model. And they would say this. It's my closing remarks. Pray and work. And remember, it's in that order. Thank you very much.
1: We have some time for questions and conversation. so if you have a question, please find your way to the microphone, and we'll begin.
2: Yes, ma'am.
0: How do you deal with the problem that naturally occurring uranium is the isotope 238, and then only 0.7% of that is actually the usable 235?
2: The issue of 238, the issue of plutonium versus 235, Natural occurring, it's not much of a problem. Uh, The issue for us is how do you deal with uh, 238? Uh, It is produced and part of our uh, cycle within the fission process. Uh, For all of us, it's encapsulated and it's monitored. And around the world, for commercial nuclear power plants, the International Atomic Energy Agency monitors all sites, Uh, to visually account for all uranium that comes in, all uranium that goes out. They're monitored by camera and monitored by inspectors and by other methods. And so there is a methodology within the nuclear community to monitor the uh, fuel, the uranium, and the pieces that go with it. There's also a process where we can reprocess our used fuel, and there are ways of working to make sure that 238 can't become a byproduct. Uh, As I think you know, the United States and the Soviet Union have spent a great deal of time taking weapons-grade material, uh, that also with uh, huge amounts of uranium-238, bringing it out of Russia and then using it in a fuel called MOX, mixed oxide fuel, that we are now burning in our reactors here to get rid of the U-238. But there is a worldwide protocol for dealing with it, and I think we've been pretty successful in it. Good questions. Thank you.
3: This is probably a follow-up question. I'm not a scientist, so I couldn't have used all those um, uh, U's and numbers. But... um I'm curious just to talk. hear you talk about nuclear waste. I mean, you're talking about emissions. So we, if we're looking at it, CO2 nuclear yep. looks really, really good. But um, if we just shift the frame a little bit, are we just creating another problem that we have to deal with later on? Um, and so then, I mean, I, I'm an idealist, but solar looks really good because, yeah, it costs this much, a little bit more to put in at the beginning, and it, it emits higher emissions but once, and then suddenly we've got all this clean energy, versus nuclear, we're getting energy, but we're also creating this huge stockpile of waste. This is my understanding. Would you just speak to that?
2: Yeah, let me say a little bit about the issue of nuclear waste. It is an issue of concern, certainly, for all of us. How do you properly store nuclear waste? The volumes are far smaller than you might might imagine. Uh, But secondly, what I would like to say is that I believe the issue of nuclear waste is not a technical problem but a political problem. All around the world, there are uh, medium-level, low-level, and high-level areas of waste storage. And as you know, in Yucca Mountain, we're trying to do some waste storage. The government is, and uh, there are issues there. We're not talking about storing it forever, but rather leaving it there than perhaps later bring it out and be able to reprocess. We do not reprocess fuel in the United States, though it is reprocessed in Europe and Asia. And so I think the issue of fuel is one that we have to deal with, deal with it uh, environmentally, and uh, deal with it appropriately. But I believe there is enough technology, and the amount is far less than you might imagine. And uh, many countries have already solved the problem. Uh, we have not had the political will h- yet here in the United States, and that is because the issue hasn't become a, a crisis yet in the country. When it does, we'll solve the problem, that is, in, in places to, go, uh, to uh, store it. So my bottom line is, I think it's a political problem, not a technical problem. And
3: sorry, when you say many places have solved the problem, how did they solve it? And when you say it's not very much, would you can you give us some numbers? Uh, Yeah, I'm trying
2: to give a picture, and I don't have the number in the back of my head. If you take a basketball court and about 15 stories uh, is about what our waste is uh, that we've had over a long period of time. And I don't have the number at my fingertips. But other wastes are far larger. And there are other wastes from other uh, process streams that are far more dangerous than even uranium. Um, And so what I would like to suggest that other countries have done it through low-level, medium-level, high-level waste storage facilities, Sweden, Finland. uh, um, You see some places in Europe and in Russia. Uh, There are places for reprocessing where the fuel comes back and is reprocessed. Uh, in the u k and France and in Japan, so there are way, and in the uh, former Soviet Union and Russia, so there are ways that are already being dealt with but it 's an important topic and one that we need to deal with sensibly yes sir
4: uh, I have uh, actually two questions. The first has to do with uh design of nuclear power plants yes sir and uh, it 's my understanding that uh the huge expense from building them is at least in part, probably because they tend to be unique; one is different from another. Is, is there a, a sort of a strategy in the works to try to make them uh, more similar, more uniform in design, where the safety issues and so forth are addressed uh, and worked out, uh, or at least a limited number of designs? So that's that's one question. The other is: Are there also in the works? Um, Plans for new new sorts of technologies, new types of reactors that perhaps might uh, produce less waste and, in some ways, be more inherently safe. And, and where are we going on both of those issues?
2: I mean, be a brief uh, brief on both, but they're great questions. I believe the biggest failure we've had in the U.S. is we haven't standardized plants, and there are about four basic. There are two basic designs, they're all water reactors, either pressurized water reactor or boiling water reactor. Here in the United States, I worry that we're not going to standardize enough our next nuclear power plants in this next generation that are coming. Uh, As noted earlier, I'm a senior vice president at Unistar Nuclear Energy, which is a joint venture between Constellation Energy and EDF in France, and we plan to build a fleet of power plants here in the United States and are in the process of putting all that together. One of the hallmarks of what we're doing with this fleet is it will be completely standardized, not only in the way we build. Our constructor will be Bechtel. Arriva is the uh, reactor designer. Alstom is the turbine designer. And all of those designs will be standardized. The plants will be standardized. The procedures will be standardized. The people that work there will have standardized training. And we believe not only does it bring excellence in operations, it lowers the cost in the way we do business. Today, there's a lot of talk about standardization. The key is to ask people, what do you mean by it? And for us, about the only differences it means for a standardized plant, the water source may differ. It may be an ocean or a river or a lake or a cooling tower. Secondly, it may be the emergency plan uh, that they have. Every state has a different emergency plan. Uh, Maybe where they sit on the electrical grid uh, makes some difference. And the only other difference of our plants will be the name on the gate. Other than that, they'll look exactly the same. Same wallpaper, same floor coloring, the same equipment, everything will be the same. Uh, But our people will not. Uh, They'll be trained and people who understand their their roles and their mission in doing business. The second question dealt with uh, future designs. There's a Gen 4 project underway to look at new designs, new ways of cooling reactors that's jointly done here in the United States and around the world. And I will say some of the new designs are passive, so we're looking at more passive systems than active systems, and uh, there's a lot of work being done on it right now. Standardization, though, is the key to make these plants, I think, work in the long run that make them
4: financially viable for all of us. It sounds like one of the largest obstacles to getting nuclear off the ground as part of our uh, solution to the energy crisis is the cost. Uh, What changes need to happen at the policy and personal levels in order to decrease that cost?
2: Well, I think it is a great question. And first of all, it is being able to get a handle on how do you manage the risk of new nuclear power plants. When those 97 plants were canceled, billions of dollars of capital was stranded. So the financial markets aren't just ready to run in and toss more money at something. They're not so sure how they're to be built. Because of operation of our power plants, and it's something I didn't say earlier, new build depends on the ability of the current plants to run safely and reliably day in and day out. And if that doesn't happen, the new plants are gone. Uh, There's good reason to believe that that won't happen. But second, and that has helped the financial community to see that these units are good, solid, safe, and reliable, and a good financial investment. The second piece is how do you manage the risk associated with the build of these plants? And how can you gate it along the way as you put the financial packages together for this? And this is a huge issue as we develop what we call EPC, Engineering, Procurement, and Construction Contracts, with all the people that have to build them. Uh, The cost of these things... Uh, 3 $4, $5 billion. Dollars. Uh, if you take all end costs, probably about $5 billion. So how you manage and put those packages together are extremely important. So managing all of this plays an important role for us. The third area is in the area of loan guarantees that the U.S. government has just finally approved in the most recent Energy Act. And this is not to give money to the industry, but to guarantee the loans that are there. There too, they are complicated. They're not for the full price, but it has opened up the financial community to be willing to invest. But I must tell you, getting the money is less of an issue than finding the appropriate way to balance out the risk to make the deal possible. Uh, but I will tell you, in our plants at Unistar Nuclear Energy, uh, we're well on the road to resolving it. But it's a tough issue. Yes, ma'am. Um.
0: Oh, up there. Do you see? Um, Nuclear fusion is a possible source of clean energy any time in the near future?
2: Yeah, it might be, but I think it's not a proven technology. There's work being done with it. This is where the creativity piece comes in. How do we harness that in new kinds of ways? I won't make an Albert Einstein kind of comment. Uh, but on the other hand, I think there are some possibilities with it, but short-term, I don't see it at the moment. Uh, but there could be some breakthroughs, and uh, I don't want to forestall that possibility. Yes, ma'am.
0: This question deals more with global warming. Um, do you feel that if intervention does not happen, that significant cli- climate change will happen, either you know, for the worse or for better? And do you think that solutions to climate change are easy or difficult?
2: I think the climate change issue is a real concern for all of us. We need to care for the universe and uh, care for the way that we treat it. And so I think we need to take seriously the kinds of emissions and uh, problems that we have associated in that area. But I think it's a hard issue to get at. How do you, particularly in developing countries where they would like to have a lot better life? And what, I mean, you only have to go to Beijing and find out what smog and pollution are about when you can't even see the sun and all it's just brown haze. Um, And so I think we need to take seriously our environment and uh, what we do with it. And I don't think that that's a. uh, an easy issue. The second part to your question was? Are
1: the solutions to global warming easy?
2: Yeah, and I think they have to be multiple. Uh, I think it involves governments making decisions of how, what kind of energy policy and environmental policy that they're going to be able to, uh, to enact. I think it also involves the way we care for the world and how we use our energy sources and how can we find non-polluting sources and be able to do the appropriate investment. I don't think this is an easy issue to get out of, but this is where I think creativity, critical thinking and compassion need to go, work, go to work uh, as we take care of the biosphere that we live in.
4: Yes, sir. A uh, couple quick questions. Number one, how do I get uh, that plumbing job you talked about, uh, $120 <laughs> an
2: hour? Uh, secondly, I guess as I look around, I see a lot of young folks in the audience, uh, and uh, certainly they're looking ahead to their uh, careers. Uh, some of those might find them find their way in industry, as you have, as I have. Uh, question is, uh, how do you, and maybe you can offer some personal remarks, how you marry uh, your calling and Christian perspective with industry goals, objectives, um, motivations for profit for advancement and so on. Are there challenges there for, uh, for folks here to be thinking about? I want to say from the very beginning I don't have anything wrong with profit, excess profit maybe, but I think profit and building strong companies is important for us as we move forward. They are job generators. And I think for us to see where we can make a difference and move forward. But I think the question for all of us is in getting and having jobs that can make a difference where I believe in asking the question to each of the young people that are here, our college students and above, where can you work where you can shape things, where you can make a difference? And so I think in companies, uh, uh, there's nothing wrong with a good job or a high paying job. You may wanna ask the question, what do you do with the resources that you've been given? How do you care for others? It's a stewardship question that we can talk about later. But what I would suggest is if we have the four C's that I've talked about, and you are looking and have a passion. uh, Look where you can begin to learn and gain the skills so that you can be in positions, whether it's within a small work group, whether it's at friends at home or in school, or in the workplace where you can begin to build teams, build people, and shape and influence outcomes. And believe me, all of us can influence outcomes if we so choose. And so that's the way I'd say we'd get started.
1: And I think the time has ended. We could keep going. But thank you very much for this speech, and and thank you for coming to the January series. I should add that Sigberg will be in the West Lobby over there for a little bit further conversation. Thank you. Thank you. That was very interesting. And the tech team will gather all of those things for us.